Well, every Easter, it's the same thing. New life, fresh start, up from the grave, he arose. Flowers pushing up through the soil, chicks breaking out of their shells, rabbits doing what they do best, making more rabbits. <laughs> Easter is about life busting out all over. If Christ is risen, anything is possible. It's great news, and we never get tired of singing it or saying it. What we neglect to mention, and we sometimes too quickly forget, is that before there was new life, there was gruesome death. The world's brightest morning followed the world's darkest night. The glory of resurrection was preceded by the shame and the suffering and the sorrow of a crucifixion. And we remember those things on Good Friday, and we should. But on Easter morning, we want to put all that darkness behind us. Earlier this week, we were having a planning meeting going over our final worship orders for the services today. One of our worship leaders was planning on singing a song about the passion of Christ, his suffering and his death. Dude, we said, you can't sing that song on Easter. It's too sad. But maybe we should have let him do it. Because here's the thing. When it comes to the gospel, death always precedes life. The old has to go before the new can come. Sometimes something has to die before we can really live. Happy Easter. <laughs> I know it's not a typical way to begin the most hopeful sermon of the year, but hopefully by the time we're done, it will all make sense. Before we go any further, I do want to add my welcome to the one you've already received, whatever campus or venue you might be in today. If you're homesick, if you're traveling, if you're watching later in the week, we are just glad you're with us. And we hope, more importantly, that you will sense God's presence even in these moments we spend together, wherever you are, that you might sense God speaking to you about your life. I happened to come across uh, some parents who were tweeting about Easter this past week. One of them wrote, it's 10.30 at night. Should I tell my kids to give up on the Easter egg hunt or let them keep going? <laughs> Another one offered this helpful tip. Tell your kids you hid an Easter egg with $50 in it in the backyard, but you don't remember where. Enjoy a quiet day indoors. <laughs> and an even more devious father wrote, these are all fathers, by the way. <laughs> My eight-year-old said he hoped the Easter egg hunt would be more challenging this year, so I'm buying a bunch of mousetraps. <laughs> now, in that kind of a spirit, I'd like to invite us on an Easter text hunt this morning. As we go poking around the Gospel of John, looking for some Easter verses we may have overlooked before. And some of them are going to be beautiful, but I should warn you, there may be a mousetrap or two in the mix. Okay, let's begin our search in John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. So on this particular day, well into Jesus' public ministry, some Greeks, some Gentiles, come to find out more about Jesus. Now at this point, Jesus is well known as a rabbi and a healer and a wonder worker and a rabble rouser. 
So it's really not that surprising that people even outside the religious community, people who might not have considered themselves spiritual or religious, have come to find out more about Jesus. We might call them seekers today. You may find yourself in that camp, not quite ready to believe or follow, but curious about Jesus and his movement. So these Greeks come out, and they're thinking about joining the movement. But before they sign up, Jesus wants them to know what they're getting into. So he says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's an interesting recruiting pitch. Hey, you want to join my company? Great. Let me tell you how you're going to die. That's what he says. He actually is pointing out a very familiar law of nature, would have been commonly understood in that agrarian society, that a seed has to die in a matter of speaking, before it can produce a, a plant that will bear more fruit, more seeds, more life. Now, if you remember your middle school science, which I know is a bit of a stretch perhaps, you'll remember that a, a seed looks something like this. It's got a, a, a hard shell on the outside called a seed coat. And then inside is some organic matter that will nourish the seed in its, in its early stage. But then within that organic matter is the embryo, and that's the life of the seed. But in order for that life to emerge, that seed has to be placed in the soil, where under the right conditions, that hard shell cracks open and begins to disintegrate and fall away allowing the life within that seed to emerge, put down roots, and begin to grow. All this happens underground, out of sight, over a period of time. But the, the, the wonder of the whole thing is that the death and decay of that single seed can produce a stalk of wheat that will bear 50 to 100 times the number of kernels of wheat. Now, what makes this especially interesting for us here at Grace is that we're just coming off a nine-week series that we've called Roots. And we've been working with the inspiring image of a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit in its season because its, its life is being sustained underground. But now Jesus takes us back to the very beginning of that beautiful tree which began with the death of a single seed disintegrating beneath the soil. And so it's a very simple law of nature. Sometimes something has to die before it can really live. But now Jesus is not just giving a botany lesson here. And if you happen to be a botanist and you want to set me straight, do that tomorrow, okay? Because this preaches just the way it is, all right? <laughs> Jesus is telling us that this natural law applies in the spiritual realm as well. Look at verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, but anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Ouch! There's one of those mouse traps. This is a tough verse. Losing your life, hating your life. Now, Jesus is obviously using some hyperbole here. He's exaggerating to make a point. But the point he's making is that sometimes you have to lose something in order to gain something. Sometimes something has to die before it can really live or before others can really live. 
Now, his disciples couldn't have known it at the time, but he was actually preparing them for what was going to happen to him in the not-too-distant future when he would lay down his life for the sins of the world. And this is where the search, this hunt, gets interesting. Last week, as I was studying the Gospels, poking around for some Easter texts, I came across one that I don't think I'd ever really appreciated before. Now, I'm sure I've read it before, but it just jumped off the page of me. I had to do a double take to make sure it was really there and I was reading it right. Listen to this verse. It's kind of tucked away, hidden in the weeds of John chapter 19, where John is describing in vivid detail the death and burial of Jesus. And listen in light of this seed image we've been using. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid him there. Now, did you catch that? At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Jesus died in a garden. His body fell to the ground in a place where things are planted. And that body was then wrapped tightly in cloths, not unlike a seed coat, that was then packed with matter, spices. And then that body, that seed, was placed in the ground. Jesus wasn't just being cute when he said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. That's exactly what was going to happen to him. But the death of that seed, as awful as it was, would in fact become a source of life for many, for anyone who would believe, including these seekers who had come to learn more about Jesus. But how does this work, this idea of Jesus dying for the sins of the world? I mean, that's a common central truth of Christianity, but why exactly did Jesus have to die? I don't have time to go into the whole theology of the atonement, as it's called, but the simple idea is that when Jesus died, he wasn't just being a noble martyr. He was actually paying the price for the world's sin. He was paying for all the damage that we have done to ourselves, to one another, and to the world around us. All the violence, all the oppression, all the exploitation, all the carelessness and foolishness, and even plain old selfishness of the human race. Someone had to accept responsibility for all of that. Someone had to say, this stuff leads to death, and it's unacceptable. It has to stop. An interesting thing happened this past week. We've all been following the story of the United Airlines passenger who was forcibly removed from that overbooked flight. It was an awful video. I'm sure we've all seen it. The whole thing was made worse the next morning when the CEO of United Airlines sent an email affirming the actions of the airline personnel and casting blame on the bloody, unconscious passenger. One analyst said it was as if the uh, head honchos at United Airlines got into a room and said, how can we make this worse? <laughs> Within 12 hours of that incident happening, by the next morning, 
there was already an online petition with thousands of signatures calling for the CEO's resignation. Why? Because there was this collective sense that someone had to pay. Someone had to accept responsibility for what happened. An injustice was done. Harm was inflicted. Trauma on all these passengers. Someone had to say by some public demonstration and even humiliation and maybe resignation, this is unacceptable. It cannot go on. It has to stop here. And when that happens, typically, a company is able to live on. The employees keep their jobs. The passengers keep flying. Well, here's the point. When Jesus stood before Pilate and the Sanhedrin and accepted the death penalty without defending himself, he was accepting responsibility for the world's sin, for yours and mine. All the pain and suffering we've inflicted on each other and the world around us. He was taking the blame for it. He was taking the burden of it. And then he took it and he put it in the ground. He buried it in the stone-cold hollow of a tomb and said, this has to stop here. And because he died, we get to live. Because he paid the price, our debt is canceled. Because he was dead and buried, we are now free to become the people we were meant to be in the first place. It's just a simple spiritual law. Sometimes something or someone needs to die before we can live again. Now, as powerful as all of that is, turns out Jesus wasn't just talking about his own death here. He was talking about ours, too. Look again at verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, but anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Sometimes we have to die to something. See, we all come into this world with the seed of life within us. It's called the image of God. We were designed to grow into good and beautiful people who would reflect the glory and goodness of God. But no sooner have we entered into this world than we begin to acquire this hard, dry, dull shell that we think will protect us and ensure our well-being. Early on, we learn to watch out for ourselves, to rely on ourselves, to promote ourselves. And we find energy to do that in our pride and our ambition and our sometimes greed or our lust or whatever it is that energizes our independent spirit. And that good and beautiful life becomes trapped in this self-protective, self-indulgent, self-reliant shell. And if you think I'm calling you crusty, you're right. <laughs> and I am too. Because we all have this hard, dry shell around us that we think will protect us and keep us happy and safe and secure. But it isn't until that shell falls into the ground, cracks open, and begins to disintegrate 
that our soul can finally begin to put down roots in God and begin growing into the good and beautiful person we were meant to be. So sometimes something has to die in us before we can truly live. Now, now sometimes the thing that has to die is obvious. It might be a bad habit, an addiction even whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography or it's uh, shopping or exercise or uh, any other thing that tends to isolate us, keep us safe or energize us. Sometimes it's an attitude that fuels our independence, that pride, that ambition, that arrogance, that prejudice. Sometimes what has to die is a relationship, a relationship that's become toxic, or that's inappropriate, or is leading us down bad paths. Sometimes the thing that needs to die is just our plain old self-centeredness, our human tendency to put our needs, interests, and desires ahead of everybody else's, to pursue and ensure our own happiness, even if it comes at the expense of those around us. And until we're prepared to die to those tendencies, Jesus says, we can never really live the lives we were meant to live in the first place. We've talked before about a best-selling author named Anne Voskamp. She also has one of the most popular mommy blogs in the world. She's a farmer's wife and a mother of six. Well, one day not too long ago, her school-aged daughter came and asked her how many days a person gets to live. So Anne did some quick calculating and figured 365 days in a year times 70 years, and she came up with a number, 25,550 days. Her daughter scrunched her freckled nose and said, how many days is that? So looking out the window at the wheat fields outside, Anne gets an idea. She sends her daughter to the garage to get a glass mason jar, and she does some more calculating she figures that 25,550 kernels of wheat measures out to about four cups of wheat. So she goes out to the pantry where she keeps the sack of wheat that she uses to bake bread. You know, like the sack of wheat you have in your pantry that you use to bake bread. (laughs) Whatever. She measures out four cups, pours it into that mason glass jar, and says to her daughter, there. Your 25,550 kernels, you get to take out one every day. And as she's talking to her daughter about how many days we get, Anne senses God speaking to her about how we're meant to live those days by laying them down, by giving them up for the sake of others by dying to our own needs, interests, and desires, throwing those days out into the everyday fields of our lives and seeing what God brings out of them. There are a thousand ways to do that, to die to yourself. Take the lousy assignment at work or the crummy desk. Sit with that new kid in the school lunchroom or the lonely kid. Let your spouse decide where to go on vacation or what movie to watch. Let your little brother or sister have the remote control. 
Prepare a meal for someone who's going through a tough time. Drive into the city to visit someone in the hospital. Open your home to someone you don't know, someone who might even be different from you. Give two or three hours a week to serve your church or your community. Write a big fat check, more than you can afford, to some worthy cause or ministry. A thousand little deaths every day, Anne writes. And it feels like dying at the beginning but soon we're finding we're just learning how to live. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, Jesus says. If we go through life protecting our time, our energy, our money, our love, keeping it to ourselves so we're sure we have enough of it, in the end, all we have is a single solitary seed in the palm of our hand, that produces very little for anyone else. But when we throw that seed into the soil of everyday life and, and let our own needs and desires fall away, well, life begins to emerge. See, it turns out we're all dying to live. And there are two ways you can do that. You can kill yourself trying to be happy, successful, popular, important. Or you can die to yourself and help someone else feel happy, successful, popular, or important. So it turns out when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just paying the price for our sins. He was showing us how to live. All right about now, you're probably wondering, when in the world is this guy going to get to the resurrection? Because <laughs> it is Easter morning. So let's push ahead to John chapter 20 and take our Easter text hunt for some more familiar verses. Now, earlier in the service, we heard John's account recited for us of what happened that morning, how Mary Magdalene came out early and found the tomb empty. She went back and told the disciples. Peter and John raced out. John gets there first. Peter blunders right in. And now notice what Peter sees when he looks into the tomb in light of all we've been talking about. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now John describes this in very vivid detail. He wants us to see it. What he wants us to see is that these grave clothes were not tossed aside in a heap as if someone had hastily unwrapped the body. No, they're lying there as if the life that was contained within that shell just sort of burst out of it, leaving them behind, not unlike a seed breaking out of its shell as it puts down roots and begins to grow. Is that a beautiful image? Now wait, it gets better. Later that day, after Peter and John have gone back, Mary Magdalene is left alone there in the garden and she's weeping. She senses someone beside her. She turns to look and sees a man she doesn't recognize, and she mistakenly believes he's the, wait for it, gardener. When he speaks her name, Mary, she recognizes him and reaches out to embrace him. Now, a couple things. First, whenever we tell this story like I just did, we usually tell it as a case of mistaken identity. Mary thought he was the gardener. Maybe it wasn't a mistake after all. Because here's Jesus laying himself down in a place where things grow, 
his body underground, the grave clothes falling away, and he busts out to bring life to the world. So Jesus is both seed and sower, garden and gardener. But wait, it gets even better than that. Because what Jesus is doing is not just tending this particular garden. He's restoring another garden that had been spoiled many, many generations earlier. A garden called Eden, where sin first entered the world and death followed close behind. But here, now in this garden, Jesus takes sin and death upon himself. He absorbs it all and he buries it in the stone-cold hollow of a tomb. Once and for all, he says, this is going to end here. And then he rises to offer life to the world, to whoever will believe in him, whoever will accept his death as the payment for their sins and follow his example of a life laid down for others. It's an incredible story. It's a beautiful image, and it's a life-changing truth. Sometimes something has to die before we can live again. And it turned out to be true for Mary even that day. The risen Jesus says to her, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. Mary had to die to the relationship she used to have with the Lord. It was a wonderful relationship, but it was earthly. It was limited. It was temporary. Soon, when the Spirit came, the Lord would be with Mary always, everywhere. And not just with her, but with everyone, everywhere, for all time, who would believe and follow him. No longer just Rabboni. He's Master, Savior, Lord and friend to Mary and to all who will believe. Sometimes the thing that has to die in us is our immature, inadequate understanding of who Christ is and his call upon our lives. And we don't have time to explore all of that today, but I can tell you as someone who has grown up in the church, been following Christ my whole life, you come to moments where you realize that your understanding of God is too small and your sense of his call on your life is too limited. And he has something new and important for you to do and become. And it can feel like a death on your way to that new thing, but it always leads to new, truer, better life. What might need to die in you in order for something new and great to begin? Well, before we finish up, we want you to hear the real-life story, a real-life dying-to-live story. Charles is a member of the Grace Chapel family. He and his family have been here for a long time. He's actually a friend of mine. And in recent years, Charles has been through a bit of a death experience, personally and professionally. As I talked with him about what we would be speaking about this Sunday, he agreed to share his story, his very personal story, with all of us. So let's turn our attention to the screens for a moment, and then I'll come back and wrap things up. In 2014, I had been in practice as an academic orthopedic hand surgeon for 12 years or so. And things were just culminating. I was being recognized nationally as a nationally known hand surgeon. And I was being considered for a professorship at uh, Harvard Medical School. 
and I was one of three finalists for a major academic institution to be chair of the orthopedic department. My philosophy when I first started work um, and as a practicing academic hand surgeon was the same philosophy I've always had, which is to focus on my work and not pay attention to the relationships of my colleagues around me and my peers and my staff. Because I felt like, well, academic hand surgery is already so busy. I need to have a high patient volume. I need to have a lot of research publications. And then I want to teach residents, fellows, and medical students. And all of that takes a lot of time. In November of that year, things started to unravel for me professionally. Somebody that I consider a competitor of mine in, in my hospital filed a accusation against me that I was performing unethical procedures. I, of course, disagreed with it. I questioned his motives instead. However, because it was a formal accusation, the hospital was forced to investigate. And when my chairman approached me, I said, investigate away. I have nothing to hide. I wasn't worried. But as the investigation moved along, they found that I had been cutting corners in my administrative work. All of a sudden, those relationships at work that I had never spent time building started to hurt me. I was left with the realization that despite all of my productivity and my success at work, I was left by myself. Three months into the investigation, early one morning, I received a terrible phone call that my mom had passed away unexpectedly. I was completely devastated, and more importantly, I felt guilty about all the times I had neglected my relationship with my mom. Meanwhile, I was asked to suspend my practice and take a leave of absence from the hospital. In order to get back to my practice, the hospital had listed out a number of things I needed to do. I was embarrassed and humiliated. I needed to observe some hand surgeons. I needed to take some courses on administrative compliance. And then I was required to go to a place called the Professional Renewal Center in Kansas which I later learned that it was essentially almost like rehab for troubled physicians. As humiliating as the experience was, it was actually the place that I started to learn the gravity of my situation and my own contributions. During this limbo period, the only thing I had was God and my family. I spent a lot of time with my kids, something I didn't really have a lot of time to do before that. I had to really dig deep and rely on my faith and trust that God was there through the whole time. And, and He was. Through my wife, who was very supportive, my family was very supportive, but also my life community. By May of 2016, I had realized that I was not going back to my original position because there are enough people who don't want me back, no matter how many tasks I perform. By God's grace, he had aligned and arranged for another hospital to hire me to be their hand surgeon 
and also lead their hand division. And I started practice in July 2016. When I started practicing again, it was the best. I was so grateful. I had just realized so many things that I had sort of neglected in terms of appreciation for my job. And I also approach my job differently now. I make sure that I pay attention to all my relationships. As I reflect back on my journey, what I initially thought was something that I could just get through and get back to my original job really wasn't the case. Something had to die. I thought it was just my attitude by my job, but God had other plans. My actual job had to die and I can get a fresh start again. From a prestigious position, one of the leading hospitals in the country, to a rehab center in the middle of nowhere, Charles found himself as alone as a single solitary seed. But there, in the wheat fields of Kansas, <laughs> something cracked open and life began to emerge as Charles discovered a deeper, stronger relationship with Christ, and then a renewed joy and meaning in his work, and above a reordered commitment to loving the people in his life first and best, and trusting God with the rest. On his way to being the husband, father, physician, friend, neighbor, Christ follower he was meant to be in the first place. What might need to die in you in order for you to discover new and true life? Maybe it's that old sinful self. Maybe you've never understood before that Christ's death was the payment for your sin. Or maybe you've never been prepared to admit you needed someone to die for your sin. Well, you can admit that today and you can lay that old crusty self in the earth right here and walk out of here to live a new life. We have an alpha course here that helps to people explore this message of the Christian faith. Maybe you've done that already, but you've still got this habit or this attitude or this relationship that's getting in the way. You're like Lazarus. You've been raised from the dead, but the grave clothes are still flapping in the breeze. You can leave those things behind. Not always overnight, but it begins with a decision. And every Monday night, folks gather here for Celebrate Recovery to lay some of those things in the grave. Or maybe what you need to die to is just that tendency to put your own needs and interests, your comfort and convenience ahead of everybody else's. Just lay it down for once. Give it away to the people and see what God might do. In two weeks, we're going to begin a series we're calling For the Good of the World. We're going to discover what happens when we begin to live this kind of life, laying it down for others in all the different venues of our lives. So what might need to die in order for you to truly live? Let's think about that as we listen to this song.